What's the only weekly wrap-up of the top compliance and ethics stories? It is This Week in FCPA with Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, and Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor. Each week, Tom and Jay highlight 10 stories which caught their collective eye, talk about sports and movies, highlight top podcasts, and preview their upcoming events. Join This Week in FCPA each week for a one-stop review of the week's compliance and ethics highlights. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This week's stories include the skyrocketing retaliation against whistleblowers as reported by the ECI in their 2021 Global Business Ethics Survey. Novartis announces a new ABC compliance program. Harry Casson reports in the FCPA blog. Expect closer cooperation between the Department of Justice and the Serious Fraud Office, Neil Hodge, and Compliance Week. Developments in the state of New York antitrust law, Wilmer Hale Lawyers and NYU's compliance and enforcement law. Nat West faces criminal charges in the UK over money laundering, Mingi Singh in the Risk and Compliance Journal. Dylan Tokar reports on the Brascom investigation into bribery allegations in Pemex. Matt Kelly takes a look at due diligence and supply chain risk management. Here be the dragon for internal audit. Interesting article from Ali Noor and Experts League. Continuous monitoring through continuous auditing by Jonathan Marks and what boards of directors are seeing as risk. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, back again with Mr. Monitor himself, Jay Rosen, for this episode of This Week in FCPA, episode 244 for the week ending, March 19, 2021. As March Madness is in the bubble this year, Jay, uh, there's still a lot of good compliance and ethics stories from the past week. What say you? I say I'm still wearing my green from St. Patty's Day, so Aaron Gobra. Is that Jay O'Rosen? Aye, it is. It is. <laughs> well, welcome, everyone. And uh, a story, which is about the ECI report, which uh, came out at the end of last week. And this is uh, the Global Business Ethics Survey it's done every, uh, I think, four years, three years, um, and it takes a look at uh, corporate compliance practitioners and their perceptions, and it had some pretty troubling uh, findings, Jay, and I'd like to just highlight one, which was retaliation rates have skyrocketed. In the U.S., retaliation for those who reported uh, or were whistleblowers was up 79% in 2020, an increase of 35 percentage points. As the GBES dryly noted, if left unaddressed, high rates of retaliation can erode ethical culture and undermine efforts to encourage employees to speak up and raise concerns. Uh, Pat Harned, the president of ECI, uh, has done a five-part podcast series with me that's running this week on the FCPA Compliance Report, releasing every day at um, 10 a.m., I've also blogged about this report. Matt Kelly uh, over on Radical Compliance has a couple of blogs up on this report. Uh, ECI had a podcast today, which I'm sure will be available uh, for replay. They also, uh, Pat was a part of a panel that I was on on a conversant podcast on uh, whistleblower retaliation on Tuesday, which is available at the Converge community. This is something, Jay, that I hope every compliance practitioner will We'll take a look at the report itself, and the reports are free. Uh, take a look at this report. The trouble, the findings are very troubling. Um, there's an increase in pressure 
to cut corners. There's an increase in perceived misconduct. There's an increase in reported misconduct. And then this finding, which is perhaps the most troubling, of retaliation. And Jay, this does not include employees who were terminated. This is only current employees. So for all those employees who were terminated, uh, who raised raised their hand and spoke up or uh, reported on the helpline, that's that's equally troubling. There's some conclusions and recommendations, and also uh, a fairly good, <laughs> robust discussion of the impact of COVID-19 on culture. So I'd urge everyone to uh, check out the five podcast series, check out any of the blogs I've referenced, and certainly download a copy of the report. It's uh, easily digestible, but it's something every compliance pressure uh, com- practitioner needs to be cognizant of. Jay? Great. Uh, next up, Tom, we're going to check in with Harry Casson from the FCPA blog. And he tells us that Novartis has announced their new anti-bribery and corruption compliance program. Novartis updated its anti-bribery policy four months after the Swiss farmer paid $346.7 million to resolve FCPA offenses in Greece, Vietnam, South Korea. Here are some interesting details from the latest version. Number one is you may expect no gifts, even culturally appropriate unbranded ones. Gifts of any kind, including personal gifts, cultural acknowledgments, or promotional aids, etc., whether branded or unbranded, must be provided to healthcare professionals or their families. Rather, must not. Number two, use the front page test to avoid embarrassment. Before giving a gift or providing a hospitality, consider whether the reputation of Novartis, yourself, or the recipient is likely to be damaged if news of the gift, hospitality, or entertainment appeared on the front page of a newspaper. If this would embarrass either the company or the recipient, please do not proceed. Number three, no facilitating payments, even if legal. Novartis prohibits facilitation payments, irrespective of whether local law permits facilitation payments. This policy is similar to Apple. In contrast, Tesla might approve of some facilitating payments. Number four, public versus private, not so different in Novartis's eyes. The company does not distinguish between public officials and employees of private sector organizations so far as bribery is concerned. However, it's important to recognize that public officials are often subject to rules and restrictions that do not apply to individual people who operate in the private sector. And number five, in some places, even healthcare professionals are considered public officials. In some countries, doctors, pharmacists, clinical trials investigators, and even nurses are public officials, irrespective of whether they're working at a government institution or not. Uh, We have linked to the full policy in the show notes, so please check it out at your leisure. Back to you, Tom. Jay, next up, we have an article from our friend Neil Hodge over at Compliance Week, and it uh, reports on a presentation by uh, Lisa Osofsky, director of the UK Series Fraud Office, and Dan Kahn, acting chief of the fraud section, excuse me, fraud section at the U.S. Department of Justice. And they talked about the closer working ties and information sharing between the agencies. Um, Although not reported in the piece, I'm sure this is regards the uh, kerfuffle that developed between the DOJ and SFO around the Unoil case, where the DOJ demanded that um, the SFO fire the uh, top investigator on the Unoil matter, which Lisa Osofsky caved in and did. Uh, That person, Tom Martin, then uh, sued 
for wrongful termination and he was successful. So a huge black eye uh, from the SFO. Also uh, questionable conduct by Lisa Osofsky allowing the uh, Ashanti brothers, uh, uh, CEO and CFO or COO of, of Unioil to visit directly with uh, defendants in the United Kingdom without their lawyers present. Apparently that's a huge no-no in the UK. So uh, some some serious things that the SFO needed to clear up. And of course, um, they recently lost a huge case at the UK Supreme Court around um, document production involving the U.S. Energy Services Company, KBR. So um, probably not surprising we saw this, uh, although uh, certainly close cooperation between the SFO and DOJ has been a mainstay of worldwide anti-bribery, anti-corruption compliance or, or rather enforcement. So it's good to see that they're back together. I certainly hope that um, uh, we don't have any more of these kerfuffles. Interestingly, Osofsky denied that the uh, SSO, SFO's perceived uh, heavy-handedness in the KBR matter. Uh, I would note that today the SFO uh, uh, publicly announced they were dropping their uh, KBR investigation with uh, no findings or, or charges against KBR. So uh, that really um, spoke, I think, volumes as to uh, where the SFO was. Uh, they said that uh, COVID-19 disruption is an opportunity for compliance functions to protect budgets and perhaps even to increase them. The SFO will have a new focus looking at companies that have committed high level fraud on the back end of the pandemic. And then the DOJ is absolutely exploring using AI and other technologies to help with its investigation. So check out Neil's article uh, in Compliance Week going forward. Great. Thanks, Tom. Uh, now it's time for our weekly check-in with the NYU Compliance and Enforcement blog. We've got four attorneys from Wilmer Hale, who are Perry Lange, Brian Mahana, Nicole Callan, and Alvaro Mateo Alonzo. And they're going to take a look at the state of antitrust law in New York State. Although much attention recently has been focused on debates in Congress, potential legislative changes to U.S. antitrust law are not limited to proposals at the federal level. Many states are considering changes to their own antitrust laws, which can usually be enforced by state AGs and private plaintiffs. Importantly, New York state legislators have introduced two bills that propose sweeping changes to the state's antitrust law. The Donnelly Act, building on measures introduced in New York's last legislative session. Here's a quick overview of the New York antitrust legislation. In January of 2021, New York State Senator and Deputy Majority Leader Michael Giannaris introduced the 21st Century Antitrust Act, uh, seeking changes in New York's antitrust law. Here is how the res revised registration, re legislation would affect people. First of all, it would prohibit unilateral conduct that creates or maintains a monopoly. It would create an unprecedented in the United States abuse of dominance offense based on European law and give the New York Attorney General rulemaking authority to carry out this provision. It would require merger notifications to the NY AG of at least 60 days prior to the consummation of any transaction holding more than $8 million in assets. It would authorize significantly higher fines for violations of the Donnelly Act, and it would authorize uh, actions by the New York Attorney General on behalf of injured individuals and businesses for violations of the Donnelly Act. 
New York Attorney General Letitia James testified in support of the prior version of the bill in a hearing before the Senate Con Consumer Protection Committee. Here's an analysis of significant proposed changes. First of all, the European-inspired abuse of dominance offense. The Donnelly Act does not contain an analog to Section 2 of the Sherman Act, which prohibits single-firm conduct that creates and maintains monopoly power. Senator Gianaris's proposal would amend the statute with language that is similar to Section 2. However, the proposed proposal would go substantially further than federal or any other U.S. state law in addressing single-firm conduct. There's a mandatory pre-merger notification. This would require companies to notify the New York Attorney General of any transaction that will result in their acquire holding more than $8 million of assets or voting securities of the target in the aggregate if the acquirer or the target are subject to jurisdiction of New York courts. What's next for other states? The original 21st Century Antitrust Act was introduced too late in last year's session to pass, though the state Senate did hold a hearing. Given the intense public focus on antitrust, there is reason to believe that the legislature will seriously consider these bills. An open question is whether other states will pursue antitrust law. While not a sweeping of the New York bills, other states have and continue to consider their own measures. Last year, Colorado amended its antitrust law to allow the AG to challenge merges that have been reviewed but not challenged by federal authorities. And a bill is in the Puerto Rico legislature, which would enable the attorney general to bring actions to recover treble damages and attorney's fees as parents patrie on behalf of indirect buyers of the products that were subject to cartel activity. Given the growing spotlight on antitrust, other state legislators may consider their own bills in the coming months. Back to you, Tom. So, Jay, uh, some untoward news from Mingi Sun uh, at the Risk and Compliance Journal over at the Wall Street Journal, and that is that NatWest, that's uh, National Westheimer Bank in the United Kingdom, is facing uh, criminal charges for allegedly failing to prevent money laundering. The uh, proceeding is the first criminal prosecution brought by the UK financial regulator based on a 2007 money laundering rule, and it's the first prosecution against a bank under that regulation. The Financial Conduct Authority, the UK regulator, alleges that NatWest failed to adequately and effectively have a money laundering controls in place, particularly how it relates or handles funds deposited into accounts of a corporate um, customer. The prosecutors have said that increasingly large deposits were made into accounts of a corporate client, a money service business around 365 million pounds, about half a million dollars was paid into the customer's account uh, over uh 60% was cash. So um, uh, interesting prosecution. This could be very damaging for NatWest. Uh, UK uh, money laundering laws require some companies to conduct and demonstrate risk-based due diligence and ongoing monitoring of their customers. And this is a huge hole in uh, UK money laundering laws and indeed UK money laundering protections, not only for the individual banks, but literally for the country as a whole. Uh, who knows where this money went, whether it funded terrorism, whether it went to nefarious actors in Russia, China, or other enemies of the United Kingdom. So uh, big trouble for NatWest. So uh, we're going to check in now with the coolest guy in compliance, Matt Kelly. He's usually writing to us out of radical compliance, but this week he appears on Navex Global's Risk and Compliance Matter blog. And Matt wants to take a look at leveraging due diligence to strengthen supply chain risk management. 
Better management of supply chain risk is a top priority for corporations these days, and that should be no surprise to compliance officers. Supply chains are longer and more complex, with more third parties participating in them than ever before. The suppliers themselves also pose more risk, legal, logistical, reputational, regulatory, and cybersecurity, just to name a few. And that was all before COVID-19 arrived. The pandemic underlined how unprepared for supply chain disruption many companies were and brought the perils of supply chain risk into the painfully sharp relief. The challenge is now, how do you leverage your due diligence program into a better supply chain management wisely? First, Matt says, consider the fundamentals. The goal with supply chain risk management and anti-corruption due diligence is fundamentally the same. You want to build an accurate risk profile of the third party so the risk profile can inform you on how your business will work with that third party, including the option of not working with the party at all. So how do you build this risk profile? By collecting data during the onboarding process? Supply chain risk management just involves many more types of data. One early step in developing a supply chain risk management program will be to define the types of data you want and then develop procedures to collect that information. This is where the blending of compliance and risk management starts to appear. For example, when we say define the type of data you want, that should lead you to say perform a risk assessment because performing a risk assessment is the first step in understanding the data you'll need to collect. But a risk assessment for regulatory compliance and risk assessment for supply chain operations aren't exactly the same thing. You'll need to use multiple risk management frameworks to work through the risks that your business might confront to understand the information you need to collect. Second, understand the importance of technology when we talk about developing procedures to collect the information. Next, build a sustainable solution. Artificial intelligence will play an increasingly important role in supply chain risk management. That's because you'll be pulling together so many different types of data that with, they will all need to be woven into one supplier's risk profile. Second, student monitoring of your suppliers will be just as important as onboarding them. Supply chain risk can change for numerous factors. Your operations change, the supplier's operations change, or their external risk environment may change. Small swings in circumstance could cause profound changes in your organization's risk. Again, this isn't a task you undertake manually. You'll need automation to support your efforts. Third, remember the remediation work that comes first. You're likely to have a lot of it. That will require sophisticated systems to track which remediation work has already been done, which is running late, and what comes next. Capabilities such as automated alerting and escalation will be your best friends. Finally, play your cards right. Leveraging due diligence into supply chain risk management is a complex endeavor, but remember, it's also an excellent opportunity for the compliance function to play a larger, more valuable role across the enterprise. With planning and effective use of technology, compliance officers can demonstrate yet again that a good compliance program can be a strategic advantage for your business. Tom? So, Jay, uh, we have another article from the Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance Journal. This one's from Dylan Tascom. And I know that you can channel your inner Captain Reno uh, quite well in this because I'm sure you are shocked, simply shocked. That Was that your shocked face? I'm uh, shocked. 
that Brascom is now internally investigating bribery allegations made by the bribe receiver, former president of Pemex, who says that Brascom bribed him. Um, I know you're shocked, uh, perhaps even double shocked, because it's Pemex and Brascom. Wow, I've never seen your double shocked face. Uh, what makes this so inane or perhaps troubling is an even better word is that in 2016, Brascom had uh, a major settlement with the Department of Justice. It was part of the Odebrecht settlement. Brascom was a subsidiary of Odebrecht, and uh, both Odebrecht and Brascom paid a combined $3.5 billion, that's with a B, um, to settle their bribery cases. How this matter could not have been uh, uncovered at that time is frankly beyond my inner Captain Raynaud. Nevertheless, the uh, former CEO of um, Pemex uh, has uh, made these allegations. Uh, I believe he's under investigation in Mexico. And now Brascom is taking a look at this through an internal investigation. It was not reported who the law firm is. So if Brascom violated this agreement, obviously that will not be good for uh, Brascom. Also, they've completed uh, their uh, monitorship. So you have to wonder how effective all of that was if it takes the bribe receiver saying, hey, you guys paid me a bribe uh, to get an internal investigation going. But uh, just another black eye for Brascom. Uh, frankly, I don't know how the company can can stay in business with an obvious culture of corruption uh, that has not changed uh, if this is just coming out. But uh, once again, great story by Dylan Tokar on top of things. And uh, it's if you're doing business in Mexico, you certainly need to be cognizant of this. And with the change or proposed change in Mexican law to take away U.S. investment in PMAX, it means it will be uh, uh, all uh, uh, no U.S. companies involved as an investor in PMEX, so it could uh, give rise to additional allegations of corruption. So, Tom, I think this is my favorite article, and I might have to do that. Uh, we like Game of Thrones in this household and Harry Potter's and all things dragon. But this comes to us from Aliyah Noor from the Experts League uh, pod, rather blog, and it's internal auditors navigation COVID, here be dragons. Here be dragons was a phrase frequently used in the 1700s and earlier by cartographers, map makers, to make a mark on maps identifying uncharted waters. It was meant to warn mariners from dangerous areas where sea monsters and dragons were believed to exist and to take caution. Companies are dealing with adverse consequences of COVID-19, such as liquidity crunch, resource constraints, underutilized assets, legal and contractual non-compliances, and in certain cases, ongoing concerns, which demand rapid responses in an environment that changes by the hour. And these times, internal audit have both an obligation and an opportunity to help their companies manage the most critical risks that COVID-19 has either created or magnified. By assisting management in weighing risk and opportunities to make informed decisions, based on and backed up by evidence to convince top management to act. While exploring here be dragons, areas to know where dragons lurk 
and Hyde, your internal audit must play both advisor insurer's role in dealing with them. Some of the roles are mentioned below and may according may vary according to industry. Explore and understand COVID-19's impact on your industry and business. Navigate and connect with key departments to assess existing and emerging risks. Evaluate emerging risks of newer operating models and business practices and redirect your attention to the most time-sensitive risks. Monitor increased cybersecurity threats due to increased VPN or mobile device usage as more employees work remotely. Look for new third-party risks due to operations and supply chain disruption. Finance and liquidity challenges may arise from revenue shortfalls, debt servicing requirements, covenant breaches, and rising consumer credit risk. Challenge management's forecasts that directly impact financial reporting, e.g. going concerns, pension scheme accounting, goodwill intangibles, and inspected credit lots, and then challenge management assessment monitoring contingency plans of key outside service providers. Internal audit must look through the risk lens beyond annual routine and step up to help and guide organizations through the pandemic by predicting the unpredictable and by dealing with risks and uncertainties, you too may avoid uh, trouble on the high sea. Tom, back to you. So, Jay, uh, our good friend Jonathan Marks, our Everything Compliance cohort, uh, has an interesting article that I think every compliance practitioner needs to take a look at on his blog, Board and Fraud. And he talks about uh, continuous improvement through continuous monitoring. And we talk about data, data analytics, but I don't think we talk enough about continuous monitoring as a driver for continuous improvement. And continuous auditing has become a necessary tool in compliance and audit profession to provide reasonable assurances that the control structure around operational environment is suitably designed. Jonathan is uh, actually going to put on a workshop on this, and so I hope that uh, you can sign up for it. It is uh, available, uh, information rather, and uh, registration is available on his site, uh, Board and Fraud. It doesn't have a, a date yet, but it'll be a data analytics and uh, uh, continuous auditing, continuous monitoring workshop. So uh, check that out. Uh, Jonathan is uh, really one of the leading experts around continuous monitoring uh, and control, uh, continuous control monitoring, continuous auditing for continuous monitoring and continuous improvement under the FCPA. And as everyone will recall, this was uh, mandated in the 2020 uh, evaluation to the update of uh, corporate compliance programs released by the Department of Justice last June. So uh, check it out. Sign up for the event. I'm sure it will be uh, excellent as uh, everything else Jonathan does, including his the most recent uh, Baker Tilly uh, fraud summit that uh, he held back in February. So, Jay? So for my last article of the day, we're going to talk to a couple of voices from compliance and take a look at what board of directors and senior execs see as the top risk for 2021. A recent survey conducted by Protivity and North Carolina State's ERM initiative disclosed the influence of COVID-19 pandemic, the economy, digital technology, talent, and organizational resiliency. And these are in the air landscape over the near term. Protivity's Jim Deloach outlines the most significant risks we also take a look at the C-Suite Challenge 2021, 
leading in a post-COVID-19 recovery. Um, since 2017, the C-Suite Challenge has expanded the survey pool beyond CEOs to include the entire C-Suite. This year's survey conducted following the U.S. elections in November of 2020 asked CEOs and C-Suite executives for their views on external stress points that they face and the strategies they will focus on to mitigate risk and seize opportunity as part of a post-COVID-19 recovery. Insights for what's ahead. When asked which issues outside of management control will have the greatest impact on their business, CEOs cite the COVID-19 virus, vaccine availability, and changing consumer buyer behaviors. However, despite modest growth expectations for the global economy in both the short and long term, business leaders seem unable to shake lingering concerns of recession. 2021, the light at the end of the pandemic tunnel. CEOs believe the distribution of successful COVID-19 vaccines will have a significant impact on their business in the coming year. Lessons learned, adaptability, flexibility, clear communication, and the need for quick, decisive action while maintaining calmness under fire. They have learned they have a need for speed. CEOs say their organizations will focus on accelerating digital transformation, modifying business models, and improving innovation. The business model challenge. Organizations must quickly pivot in response to new risks and opportunities, requiring an extraordinary level of alignment. Leaders of growth, while consumer buying behaviors are changing, they see new products and services and new customer segments driven by data analytics and expanded strategic partnerships as key levers of, levers of growth. Excuse me. Human capital management, despite the economic doldrums, CEOs remain focused on the recruitment and retention of top talent. Remote working has reached equilibrium. A year into the pandemic, remote work may have reached an equilibrium and few responding CEOs planning to make significant changes to the current number of remote workers. Policy impacts. The change in the U.S. administration appears to have an impact on CEOs' view of the global business environment. This year's survey shows that businesses have diminished levels of concern about trade disruption, global political instability, and declining trust in the government. Taking a look beyond the pandemic, the long-term legacies of COVID-19. CEOs anticipate a reduction in business travel, the automation of tasks, large firms having better access to capital markets, and more resilient supply chains as an increased focus on the climate change among the most likely long-term legacies. In terms of social justice and climate risk, compared to issues such as the pandemic and recession risks, CEOs do not see social justice concerns and climate change as having an immediate impact on the business environment in 2021. Supply chain fixes, even though concerns about global trade disruption have diminished, the pandemic has exposed vulnerabilities in our supply chains, and CEOs believe these need to be addressed leading in a post-COVID-19 recovery. When asked about which issues outside of management control will have the greatest impact on their business, CEOs cite the COVID-19 virus, vaccine availability, and changing consumer buyer patterns as game changers for 2021. CEOs believe the distribution of a successful vaccine will have a significant impact on their business in the coming year. While several factors are contributing to the recent rise in CEO confidence in the U.S. and Europe, 
The survey indicates vaccine distribution is contributing to the more positive view of future growth by taking the worst case economic scenarios out of play. The increased availability of COVID vaccines will also play provide greater clarity and predictability around short-term planning and operations such as when physical workplaces can reopen and the dependability of supply chains. Tom, we're now ready to go into the podcast uh, part of our podcast. What do we have coming up on the Compliance Podcast Network this week? And that was uh, uh, Rob Chestnut on The Compliance Life, moving to the Chief Compliance Officer role at Airbnb. That was uh, certainly a fascinating discussion. Uh, Microsoft has two podcasts on the Compliance Podcast Network. In the Voices of Data Protection, uh, they talked about the value of information governance. And I don't think that's something that most compliance practitioners think about or even cognizant of, but the governance of your information can be a very valuable asset. And then over on uncovering hidden risk, how about looking at HR data to uncover uh, hidden risks? It's not something that's often done. And once again, uncovering hidden risk does not focus on third parties. It focuses on internal risk. So it's typically not within the uh, something that the compliance officer thinks about. But um, Talamir and Raymond Collin have convinced me that you as a compliance officer need to be aware of internal risks. Uh, as for a, um, a five-part series that I mentioned, I have Pat Harned the entire week on the ECI 2021 Global Business Ethics Survey. In episode one, we looked at key trends. In episode two, we looked at some of the key findings. We focused solely on the retaliation finding that I talked about before in episode three. In episode four, we took a look at something that probably you and your uh, AMI colleagues are thinking about, Jay, which is the impact of COVID-19 on culture. And then today in part five, we looked at um, conclusions and recommendations. So check out that five-part series. We link to the ECI report in each episode. I would urge every listener to uh, download it and read it. It's chock full of information. But here's what the event I want to talk about, Jay, ethics madness. Um, a little bit of history. Jason Meyer came up with this idea, a, a noted ethics expert in our field. Uh, many people will re remember him from Compliance Week or CC, uh, SCCE conferences, uh, well-known ethics and, and compliance practitioner, but a little more focus on ethics, I think. And uh, about five years ago, Jason approached me and a few others, Amy McDougall and a couple of others, about having a ethics event while March Madness was going on in the first day of March Madness. Uh, this year in the bubble, the first day of March Madness is on Friday. Typically, it's on Thursday. And it's truly one of the great sporting events of the year. It is, I think it's 36 basketball games literally across the country and just some fabulous hoops, great upsets, uh, great traditions all the way from the 16 seeds, uh, once upsetting on number one seed. So you can have some, some big upsets and some great play. But we're going to watch the game and then we're going to uh, have an ongoing ethics chat. And Jason is our ringmaster, posing questions and guiding our discussions. This year we're going to be on Zoom, so we'll be fully interactive. So I hope that everyone will settle themselves in front of a big screen or other TV. Uh, hopefully you're not at a bar this year, unless you're in the great state of Texas where <laughs> bars are open again. Um, but you got your computer and you can join us for Ethics Madness. I know uh, I always have a ton of fun. I hope you'll be able to join us this year, Jay. And uh, I'm really looking forward to it. 
So it'll almost be like the sports book in Vegas, but not the sports book in Vegas. Almost. Almost. So, Tom, why don't you tell our listeners and viewers what you can do for them if they would like to purchase the Compliance Handbook Second Edition, which is now available for pre-sale purchase? Well, uh, listeners to this podcast can get a 25% discount. Uh, We've got the code in the show notes, so uh, check out the handbook. And I also should probably plug the podcast series. I'm doing a pod tubing event in honor of this uh, new book release. That's a video podcast. And this week I have Karen Woody. Karen's a professor at WNL, and she focuses on uh, internal controls and the Securities and Exchange Commission. She's one of the top legal academicians around SEC and SEC practice. Uh, clear, concise, kind of, you know, no BS. Um, writing about the SEC, and uh, I had the chance to to sit down with her um, to talk about internal controls. It was a, it was a great interview. So you can check out Karen. Uh, last week, I think we had uh, Mary Shirley, the Gwick girls, Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine, uh, talking about policies and procedures. We've had Mike Volkoff talking about boards of directors. Stephen Martin talking about uh, compliance programs. So it's been a great series. Uh, coming up, we have Amy Bernard Bond, who's going to talk to us about the role of HR and compliance. So uh, check out the Compliance Handbook if you want to go to YouTube for the video presentation. It's available on my YouTube channel, and then it's also available on the Compliance Podcast Network, uh, JD Supra, and it has its own iTunes channel. So check all that out, and then go buy the book with the discount, Jay. So if you'd like to reach Tom, who is the voice of compliance, he can be reached at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. And I'm Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor. You can reach me at the initial J-R-O-S-E-N at affiliatedmonitors.com. So on behalf of Tom Fox and myself, we'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA episode 244 for the week ending March 19th, 2021, the mask-free edition. We hope to uh, hear from you tomorrow at the beginning of our uh, ethics and uh, basketball event. And we hope that you have a great weekend. Thank you for joining us. And we'll talk to you next week on This Week in FCPA. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Thompson. Thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have any questions, you can reach Jay or Jay Rosen is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.